0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking. What's Working, and New Ideas in Sustainability, Resilience, and Regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering, campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Vincent Bevins to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Vincent is an award-winning journalist and correspondent. He covered Southeast Asia for the Washington Post, reporting from across the entire region, and also served as the Brazil correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, also covering nearby parts of South America. Vincent has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Economist, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, the New York Review of Books. His previous book is The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. So thank you very much, Vincent, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Before we dive into the, your your latest book and uh, your, your research and the work that you do, can you just maybe introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and your work?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. My name is Vincent, Vincent Bevins. I'm from the United States, uh, born and raised in California. Um, I've been working in international journalism for about 15 years now. Um, and that really started uh, in a serious way at the Financial Times, uh, and then it was with the financial times that I came here to Brazil uh, ended up serving as a correspondent in Brazil from 2011 to 2016 for the Los Angeles times went to Indonesia for three years, wrote a book called the Jakarta method. And right when that book was um, about to come out, I started working on on a second book. um, This one, if we burn.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What uh, drew you to this subject after the Jakarta method? Is there a connection? Uh, Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Jakarta method, which is fabulous. And, uh, I think, very well-reviewed and acclaimed book, very interesting research indeed, and very hard-hitting. Um, was there a journey? Is this something that's been on your mind? Uh, and, and just tell us a little bit about that trajectory.
1: Yeah, they're they're related in sort of um, two different ways. So in one sense, the second book comes before the first book in terms of this has been something I've been working on and dealing with in my professional um uh, research for a decade now, so it all kind of this is a this is something I've been sort of working on in some way or another since 2013. But then chronologically, um, both works are, are, are works of history. Uh, the second book does sort of serve as an indirect sequel to the Jakarta method. So yeah, just to resume, just to summarize quickly, the Jakarta method is a book about violence and mass murder carried out carried out against the left or people accused of being on the left during the Cold War, um, the worst case of which was the uh, mass murder of approximately 1 million people in Indonesia in 1965 and 1966, done with the active assistance of the U.S. government. And I found that something like this, or indeed inspired by this mass murder program, happened in 22 countries um, elsewhere around the world in the Cold War. Now, um, the second book starts... Basically, at the end of the Cold War, the focus is is, is very different. The focus is not on the U.S. um, primarily. The U.S. comes into the story like a lot of other um, countries come into um, the story after events are really uh, unleashed by protest movements on the ground of of, of many countries. I look very closely at 10, but um, there's more that I discuss. And this all stems from an experience that I had um, starting in June, 2013, when I was working as a correspondent here in Brazil, when a small set of protests started by left anarchists um, uh, who were demanding that the price of a bus fare be lowered exploded into a protest movement that grew far, far outside of the control of this original group. Um, eventually allowed for the uh, appearance of the the far right on the streets of Brazil. And a few years down the road, um, if you look at what really happened, Brazilians got the exact opposite of what they were asking for uh, in 2013. And this is not only sort of a historical... a historical paradox and something that I think that we need to understand. um, If we want to understand recent Brazilian history, this was something that was very, very strange for me. And a lot of the people that lived through this from their very beginning, like how could this happen? Like how, how is it that, You get a small protest that becomes a very big protest, which is exactly what everybody wanted. Everyone was was overjoyed when the small protest became a huge protest, at least uh, I'm referring now to the people who organized the first protest. I was acting as a journalist. Um, I wasn't supposed to want everything, but I admit that I kind of got swept up in all this. Um, And how is it that that ends up being bad? And if you step back, uh, you know, the more I thought about this, the more I tried to understand my own relationship to this strange turn, uh, a very tragic turn here in Brazil, Um. It became clear that this is something. This is this kind of thing had happened all around the world. Um, Essentially, starting in twenty eleven in Tunisia, uh, I ran. I round out my um, scope of investigation, the chronology uh, of the period that I am looking at at the end of that decade twenty twenty with uprisings in Chile and Hong Kong. Um, But really, this has been a personal interest of mine ever since that I got sucked into this very strange uh, and paradoxical historical kind of black hole here in
0: brazil can you say just in a few uh, sentences what the theme and what 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 if we burn is actually about
1: yeah it 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 it, at the risk of sounding wildly ambitious ambitious it attempts to be a global history of the world so sorry, it, it attempts to be a a history of the world from 2010 to 2020. Uh, but like any work of history, it, it is limited in its in its uh, scope of investigation. It has particular concerns. And the main concern for this work of history is to answer the question or at least to build that history around the question. How is it that so many mass protests led to the opposite of what they asked for? Um, so it is a it is the events of this century. Acting as if, and I think that it it makes perfect sense to act in this way, Um, explosive mass protests and their unexpected consequences were really what propelled
0: events through a lot of this decade. Right. Very interesting. Now, before we we go into more detail, um, I mean, the primary focus of this podcast is sustainability-related issues, uh, global warming, environmental questions. Um, not just, but uh, that's at the heart of it. Uh, clearly, uh, in the world, we, we face many uh, environmental problems uh, interlinked, uh, but also many other problems as well. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, what, what's, what in particular is on your mind right now, more generally, worried about, about the state of affairs, shall we say, in the world?
1: Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of overlap with, with uh, ecological concerns and and the looming threat of climate catastrophe. Um, I think one thing that was demonstrated in this period that I look at 2010 to 2020 is that there is a huge amount of desire to change the global system that we inhabit. There's a huge amount of people that came out into the streets trying to change our global system. Um, And in, and, in many cases, too many cases, they failed or generated the opposite of what they asked for. Now, th- this book is built around a trying to understand how it is that we can take that energy, that that energy to change the global system um, can be directed better next time uh, or continue to be directed, but in a more productive way. And of course, one of the major things that, that um, ignites people, that gets people... Um, concerned about the need to change our global system, which is one, of course, built primarily uh, on the reproduction of the conditions for the accumulation of capital, which is the system, I think, which is pretty fundamentally incompatible with uh, averting climate catastrophe. I think that the system we currently have will probably allow climate catastrophe to happen before its incentives require that we take action. So um, climate... Justice, climate action, the just uh, avoiding the annihilation of the planet and the human race is one of the major things that has driven um, protests in the last 10 years. And at the very end of the book, when the people that have failed or worse than failed, tragically, often what they told me when they said that it was worth sitting down to talk about this as they were looking forward to the world that their children were going to live in. They were looking forward to a world in which their sons or daughters might um, get swept up in in an attempt to change the world. And they wanted to pass these lessons down to their children. And one of the main things that these people brought up, you know, setting aside my own personal opinions, one of the main things that people brought up in Egypt or Brazil or in Chile or in Tunisia is that my kids are going to face climate catastrophe if they don't find a way to forge a new path um and then of course here in the, in the case of brazil that very tragic turnaround that i spoke about you know this was a group of um left anarchists in 2013 that started this protest explosion and eventually what we got five years later was a president that was very proud of the destruction of the amazon you saw the amazon literally burst into flames um, the year after Jair Bolsonaro took over here in 2019, or after he won election in 2018, soon after he took over in 2019. This is part of the significance of the title, if we were, in, you know, it resonates with a lot of different moments in the in the decade. But here, the consequences for the environment of this, of the missteps or of the possibilities of taking better steps in the
0: future um, are are very immediate. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. And what makes you optimistic when you look around today? Well,
1: it's it's the same thing that led to this the investigation of this book in the first place. Like it was, you know, it it was we were probably naive to believe that the simple and uh, that the simple eruption of desire for change would automatically get us the change. Um, That was probably a um, an illusion that a lot of people in my generation um, was guilty of. We're guilty of at the beginning of the decade. Um, we thought that all you needed was really the explosion of discontent, and then somehow or another, magically, this was a weird gap that we never seemed to fill in um, that would make the world a better place. So that gap was missing. The th- the thing that gets us from A to B was missing, but A appeared. A is there. You know, it's it's very clear that there is that huge um, amount of desire to to improve our global system. People are willing to take risks. People are willing to fight for it. Uh, We had a piece missing, um, but it was stupid to think we could get it done in one year or three years or 10 years. Um, And all we need to do is continue to to direct the energy that has appeared um, into long-term consequences. I think that, you know, as a new generation comes up, I'm I'm like an older millennial, an older millennial, sort of the generation that kind of ended up being accidentally or uh, sometimes on uh, sometimes not accidentally at the front of these the movements I write about when we look towards a new generation my hope the entire point of writing this book is that they'll be able to that they will care just as much as we did about change in the world but they'll be better at doing it
0: right um and uh lots of points there i'd like to come back to later in the interview but can you just tell us a little bit about the scope of the book the number of people you spoke to the range of uh actions the range of uh protests
1: yeah uh the scope is basically as big as you could possibly uh uh, choose uh it is planet earth over 10 years um i I spoke to something like 250. I did like something like 250 interviews, and, I, and that was spread across maybe 12 or 13 countries. So once I started really working on this in 2019, I basically just lived on the road uh, interviewing people. Um, and I, it is intentional and, and important that I that I chose countries which are radically different in their political structures um, and in their histories. Uh, And in the systems that people tried to to overthrow, I mean, not every not every protest movement in this book was progressive. Not every protest movement in this book um, was aimed at a dictatorship. Some were aimed at democracy. Some were aimed at dictatorship. Some were aimed uh, at very imperfect democracies. That choice to put very different systems on one timeline was intentional, because one of the mistakes that I think that was made, and this is not, you know, I'm not just pulling this out of my own hat um people told me this all the time is that well we saw something else work somewhere else uh and we did that here we just imported it even though the systems were very different so it's it is it is a feature it is an intentional feature of the book that the the systems are very different but essentially the story starts with the eruption of what is eventually eventually dubbed the the Arab Spring by the international press, not by the participants themselves. That starts in Tunisia. In 2010, you get a real eruption of uprisings across North Africa. Um, Then this takes a while to be sorted out or to um, generate the long-term consequences. Uh, Then you get an uprising in Turkey, then in Brazil, then in Ukraine, then in Hong Kong. Things slow down a little bit again. You get an impeachment in South Korea. You get a movement in Indonesia. And then Hong Kong and Chile round out the decades, the decade. And now by the end of the decade, by 2019, there are far more people... Far more people have protested in this period than any other point in human history. Pe- protests are exploding all over the world in late 2019. These stop because of the pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 forces us all inside. Um, some, you know, in some rare cases, people are, wa- are able to walk away with some kind of a victory as a result of this. And in many other cases, things are just starting to st- stop short. But it really, it really covers all that material from, from a beginning in North Africa to the end in Chile and Hong Kong at the same time.
0: Yeah, tremendous detail uh, of, uh, I guess, many stories which I would have read uh, peripherally in the press, but very nuanced and granular uh, picture of what was happening on the ground in so many different countries. Can you maybe summarize a few of your findings. Uh, Clearly, uh, social media is a big part of this. You have some very interesting insights also about the the idea of a political vacuum or pre-existing political organizations. You could uh, maybe identify a handful of of what you think might be uh, insightful for others, uh, other protest movements, and then maybe we can dig into those a little bit.
1: Yeah, that works. I mean, I've already made the point that each country... Is quite different, and so the 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 thing that happens in each place is different. Um, it's important to realize uh, that that's sort of lesson one that I've already just outlined. If you see something on TV that looks really cool in Egypt, you shouldn't copy and paste it into your own country just because it looks cool. And this is what a lot of people did. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was was an attempt to do Tahrir Square in the United States. Um, uh, the umbrella movement in Hong Kong was an attempt to copy Occupy Wall Street, which was a copy of Egypt, which was a copy of Tunisia. And that copy was made in 2014 in Hong Kong after it was already clear that Egypt hadn't worked. So this is one thing that people told me is that, you know, there is a difference between the desire to do something and doing the right thing uh, and copying and pasting uh, doesn't work. But then Having having said that, uh, a a certain amount of lessons do emerge, a certain set of themes which emerge across a lot of different countries. Um, And if I were to try to to give the sort of headline version of those lessons, I could, you know, and we could expand on each one, but it would be something like First, uh, organize. Uh, The time to organize uh, for a better world is always now. Um, because when some when when an explosion comes comes along when, when history comes knocking, it tends to be the groups that are already organized beforehand that do the best. Um, the attempts to sort of build something out of the energy of of a, of a protest explosion have worked out much less uh, much much less effectively than the long term slow building of organizations that are able to take advantage of of when history comes knocking.
0: Um, but that's an interesting point. And maybe maybe, uh, if, if, maybe we can discuss yeah. say, each point in turn, and then uh, as long as we keep in frame, we're, we're going with it yeah, all. I'm there you go. That's the good. first one. That's number one. You make a distinction in the book between the explosion of uh, unrest or something that triggers the whole thing, and then the next stage, which is some kind of organizational form, maybe some kind of structure, or the necessity of that, or the requirement of that? Can you talk about that basic idea?
1: Yeah, so social media, as you said, is important here.
0: Um, One thing that I think
1: younger readers or listeners won't remember, because it seems so insanely distant, is you may remember that. At the beginning of this decade, everybody thought that social media was just good. Everybody thought that anything that happened on the Internet was going to further democracy and further the advance of you know, human progress. And what it turns out, the, you know, and then there was, you know, there was an opposite opinion that said, well, actually, social media doesn't matter at all. But it turns out that social media does do quite a lot for allowing particular types of uprisings to scale up very quickly. Um, and as I, as I say in the book, what we saw is a particular type of contention, a particular type of resistance to political injustice or to social injustice became hegemonic. And that was the, the mass, digitally coordinated, apparently spontaneous, uh, horizontally organized, uh, mass protest, right? And so that kind of protest, um, social media does help to get very, very big very quickly. Uh, social media, you know, in, for, for for an uprising to happen, like if you look at any of the cases, Tunisia, Brazil, there must be many, many other ingredients as well. It's it's totally stupid to say that social media does all of it. But the, but the addition of social media into the mix in the 2010s allowed for street protests, especially ones that were very um, – focused on individual participation rather than a uh, a, a, a mass movement organizing things hierarchically, um, got very quick, very, quick, very, very, very big, very quickly. And my book focuses on cases in which they got so big that they actually disrupted or overthrew the political system. Now in that moment in which the political system is overthrown or disrupted, in no case that I, that I, that I came across has the protest movement itself the mass protest, but able to fill the political vacuum or to generate a new reality or construct a new system, because a protest is not very good at carrying out a revolution. When, what, what, when what you have is a bunch of people in the street and the government has been list dislodged or weakened, um, who tends to take advantage of that situation, which, you know, uh, I don't want to give away sort of the ending. I mean, there's, there's a lot of story in the book and some, some of the people in the book come to similar conclusions, but those that tend to take advantage of the vacuum created by this disruption tend to be either the, the the existing elites that are waiting in the wings the people who already hold some power but they're not at the center of the political system or the 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 the, the organizations the movements which are already uh, biggest and most coherent before the thing started in the first place so That's a very good rubric to understand what happens after the protest is that the people who already have a lot of organization or the people who already are elites and already have access to some power rush into the vacuum because the protest, especially a protest of individuals who are showing up to the streets for their own reason, is incapable of filling a power vacuum, carrying out a revolution or building a new political system.
0: Right now. It's also interesting, I guess, to think about the time frame in which you're thinking about, um, because, for example, you're looking at a pretty recent decade. Um, How long does it take to really uh, judge a protest movement and get a sense of its impact
1: it takes a thousand years. It takes it takes it takes all of human history. Yeah, yeah. will never you'll you'll never know until until humanity's dead. Yeah,
0: yeah. Slavery took what eighty years or something like that. Uh, women's rights, you know, these things take fifty, seventy, some of them, you know, long periods of time and much longer in, in some cases too. Um, and um, I think uh, Rebecca Solnit was, said something in a, in a piece recently where she. I guess she talks about these these kind of protests or public actions as harvests of the seeds planted before them. That right. each protest in some sense, uh, and I talked to Francis Fox Piven about this, about Occupy, you know, was it a failure? As as Rebecca Solnit would say, that ge- they, they they generate seeds for future actions and so forth. Right. And what about that idea of of something unfolding over time and, and how did you you know, think about that in terms of evaluating, you know, whether or not it's it's been a success within a particular time frame. No,
1: well, that's a great question. Question, and that and that question sort of animated the willingness of the interviewees to 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 speak to me in the first place. Um, but I, I like just to answer your question directly. I mean, probably everybody already knows it, and maybe everyone already knows that it's fake. But I still love it, anyways. There's the famous conversation when. Henry Kissinger is talking yes. to. I was uh, going to that. <laughs> I haven't,
0: I haven't got <laughs> the Henry quote, Kissinger is <laughs>
1: talking to <laughs> yeah. Zhou Enlai, uh, the Foreign Minister of the People's Republic of China, and and you know, reportedly, Kissinger says, "Well, what do you think of the French Revolution?" He says, "It's too early to tell." Yeah, and, and he was actually talking know, about
0: something completely different. But yeah, no, it's it's a good yeah, quote. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's wrong, it's wrong, but it's still it's still captures uh, something, it, yeah. It captures the, the the real answer to your question, which is that whether or not, let's say, I mean. Whether or not anything that ever has happened in human history is considered a success or a failure is determined by the people who were alive at any given moment and writing the history at at that point. So the people that spoke to me in the book would love the main, the reason that they wanted to sit down with me is because they said that you know then it, it's not exactly what they said but this is i think this is the feeling the sentiment expressed across a lot of different interviews is that we want to live in a world in 15 years in which the people writing history in 15 years say that what we did did plant the seed for something else that did happen and that did succeed but for that view of what happened from 2011 to 2015 2011 to 2019 to become reality in 2035, the next generation has to actually win because if our enemies win, then they're going to write a history in which we were uh, we were fools and we were crushed and it was right for us to be crushed. And that's the distinction whether or not that version of history written in 2035 may be written or will be written. I think is quite important and speaks to one of the major errors that my generation made. And without getting, I don't want to get too theoretical or too philosophical, but I think that my generation, especially in the English speaking world was in a deep sense, especially in the United States, uh, motivated by a deep uh, idea of this idea that just things just automatically get better. That if you, if there is some kind of a battle, the good guys always win in the end. Um, And we would you do want to build an idea of history, you want to build a version of a, a, a build an understanding of the world in which you are marching towards a better future, but you have to understand for that better future to come around. you do actually have to win and in order to win, you have to understand that you can lose so I would love for it to be true in twenty years that the movements that I wrote about uh, not all of them, not all, you know, some of them are, I mean, my sim- my degree of sympathy with the various ones doesn't really matter to the, to the story. But I would love for a lot of the people that I met over the last four years to be able to say in, in 20 years, we planted the seeds for something that was built upon and that grew into something good and is now the world in which we live in. But in order for that to happen, we have to understand that it might not
0: yeah, it's, it's very interesting you make the distinction between the initial explosion and I guess kind of heading into Naomi Klein territory, the shock doctrine, the the, the uh, organisations, the institutions that uh, can take advantage of this, that are already there in place, take advantage of the disruption and so forth. And yet at the same time, if something emerges and there's a spontaneous response, by definition, there isn't going to be an organisation necessarily that is there to build upon and particularly and i think uh, maybe it was in egypt and 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 a couple of other countries you mentioned that that the, the the civic organizations had been hollowed out right um that that this is an important element a kind of prerequisite in some way that you have an ecology of i guess uh organizations cooperatives and so forth that are uh Thinking about these issues and organizing around these issues—that that is kind of a bedrock in some way of a social, uh, political system that is uh, well well structured to be able to respond to these kinds of issues. Yeah, you hit
1: on you hit on two two terms there, which I I, I was glad to hear, and I want you know because I want to to, to jump on them quickly. You said spontaneous, and, and well, actually, you said two things that both relate to a Brazilian philosopher that I end up citing at the very end of the book. My generation, again, especially in the English-speaking world, especially in the United States, tended to fetishize spontaneity. Um, The idea that a spontaneous protest is better than a non-spontaneous protest. And what happens if you look really, really closely at that idea? um, It starts to become clear clear that there is no such thing, actually, as spontaneity. If you look close enough, there's no such thing as spontaneity. And to the extent that it means anything, uh, it often isn't good. Um, there's no reason to to privilege spontaneity over any other kind of uh, eruption or any kind of struggle or any other kind of um, action. Uh, and when you when you act as if the spontaneous is the only legitimate one, you end up foreclosing a lot of really a lot of the things that have worked historically to build to build better societies. Um, and then you you, you dropped uh, the term ecology of organizations, which is again the same. The same philosopher, Rodrigo Nunes, uh, came up with his idea of what a sort of um, next step forward is from this, from the a decade in which we really believed in a sort of indi- individualist, everybody for themselves, everybody on the streets for their own reason, uh, type of protest, in which you do have dedicated hierarchically or hierarchically organized um, organizations and this is going to be port, point point two of the of, of the lessons. Don't be afraid of those. As point two don't just because the an organization is has discipline or hierarchy of representation doesn't mean you're automatically uh, th- that something authoritarian is going on. Um, but he recognizes, and this is why he talks about an ecology of organizations that not everyone's going to want to be in one of those. Not everyone's going to be a dedicated member of the you know the climate revolutionary front or whatever. Um, and you also are going to rely on the participation of regular people. But you also, but, but you're, it's okay to have more than one thing working together at the same time. Uh, what is bad is to fetishize the types of organizations that can't really take advantage of the chaos once the chaos is unleashed. Points one and two is actually just an Egyptian just told me this straight up. He said, he's very, you know, he'd clearly thought about this for a long time. He just said, the lessons are organize and don't be afraid of representation.
0: I, I can't find the notes that I wrote, but there was a good quotation and you'd probably remember exactly what it was. Uh, it's something around the, the idea that, um, that political power will fill the void.
1: Oh yeah. Well, yeah. So there's, there's a famous quote. Well, so a Turkish sociologist who's, who is, um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting because across the decade, you saw a lot of people pop up in different countries that came to similar conclusions in very different contexts. And, Um, The Turkish sociologist, Sihan Tuyal, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, summarizes Marx from the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte saying, uh, those who cannot represent themselves will be represented. And I think that's a very, you know, that text was written like 107 years ago, but I think that's a fundamental dynamic of what happens uh, in many cases of these mass protest explosions is that um, the, the... Ultimate meaning of what happened, the ultimate point of what they were doing, the ultimate historical content of the mass protests, ends up not actually being defined by the people who did it. It ends up being defined by people on the outside that have control over the means of communication in the given country. Because by definition, this particular type of protest, the, sponta- the apparently spontaneous, digitally coordinated, horizontally organized mass protests cannot speak for itself. So someone else speaks for it. Um, so if, so there have been some strains of thought on the sort of anarcho or libertarian um, wing of a certain, uh, uh, anarcho and libertarian wings of political thought in the last 20, 30 years, which were much more popular in my country, especially my native California. And this is related to the rise of social media, by the way. Um, on that sort of ain't like far anti authoritarian or libertarian end of political thought. There was an idea that all representation was bad. But what tends to happen historically is that if you don't decide on your representation, it emerges anyways. And it often emerges in a worse way than, than, than you would select rather than, what what um, do you mean?
0: Decide on your representation? What does that entail? Exactly.
1: So for example, if we think about a union leader, right? Uh, In recent times, Mick Lynch gets to go on television and he represents his union. And if the people in his union don't like the job he's doing, they can vote him out. They can get somebody else. Now, historically, when you have uh, movements which are intentionally or dogmatically structureless or representationless, the leaders tend to either emerge from social power within the group. So they're the most, they're the most, they're the best connector there. There's a, there's a sort of ruling click that ends up exercising real authority. And then there's no There's no mechanism within the group to say, well, that leader is not representing me correctly because you're not allowed to accept that they are representing you in the first place. And then another dynamic in which representation is imposed upon a large group of people rather than selected by them is simply by the media. And this is something that I was guilty of, I think. Uh, I think a lot of my colleagues around the world were guilty of this, is that when, for example, millions... um, or perhaps hundreds of thousands of people burst onto the street without somebody go- saying, "I'm the spokesperson for this group," without somebody saying, "Oh, I, you know, this group, this this protest is around is about this because we've all decided to take part in a protest about this." People like me are given the rep- the, the 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 responsibility for which we were entirely inadequate to tell the world what this was about. And if you looked very cl- carefully at what people like me did in the case of explosions in Brazil or in the explosions of Tahrir Square and the impl- explosions in Hong Kong or the, ex- yeah, the two explosions in Hong Kong or in the case of Ukraine, we kind of went around guided by anecdotes and our own ideological assumptions. And that is a power that people like me should not have. Um, I think some of us did an okay job. Some of us did quite a bad job. I think some quite bad things happened out of as a result of this process of representation being imposed from the outside upon the movement. Um, a lot of people, historically, this goes back to fr- France, 1968. A lot of people experience real trauma watching the dissonance, the distance between what enters history of as the meaning of what they were doing and what they remember that they were doing. Uh, and I think this is a a, a consequence, an un, un, unintended consequence, but I think by now pretty well historically established consequence of what happens when you try not to have res, representation. or in the, uh, you know, and you 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 mentioned the important case where there isn't really good representation because in a, in a society like Egypt, all of the civil society organizations had been decimated by the decades of dictatorship. But you also had cases in this in this decade in which, movements thought it was good, thought it was morally privileged, thought it was superior to be representationless and structureless. And I think that there, there was a kind of elective affinity with the particular technology of for-profit social networks and with the, ideo- the deep ideological assumptions of liberal journalists in the global media that sort of caused this tendency to really come to the, come to the center uh, in what I call the mass protest decade.
0: Yeah, very, very interesting
1: point three and four i think we kind of got to them in a roundabout way uh if you are if you are thinking about doing (laughs) a a disruptive mass protest uh you should three pay careful attention to the elites that are waiting in the wings um because often if you overthrow hosni mubarak then it's going to be the military that comes into the to the vacuum. Uh, if you if you don't have the mor- the organization uh, and the and the sort of revolutionary mission to to step into power yourself, then probably what you want to do is negotiate. And again, that implies representation or pay attention to who's in the wings. And if you know if you think that the 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 opposition or the person who's likely to take power is better, then great, and go for it. But pay attention to who's waiting in the wings because um, they're going to take. Uh, take advantage of the situation. And this is, again, that will often be a foreign country, right? Uh, the smaller and poorer your country is, the more likely that a power vacuum will invite some kind of foreign intervention. And we saw this across what I call the mass protest decade um, in Syria, uh, or sorry, in Libya, what starts uh, as a protest movement ends up in regime change conducted by NATO, uh in Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates started get, start getting involved in politics. Of course, in Ukraine, we now have a war with Russia, which is indirectly, well, indirectly, uh, and it's directly the consequence of the, the Euromaidan uprising. Um, uh, but of course, there were other factors that have been at play in that region for a long time. So pay attention to who else would want to take advantage, advantage of chaos. That might be someone that you want to take advantage of it, but it might not be. And then, yeah, for pay attention to who controls the media. Because if you... If you have millions of people in the street, but you don't have a way to get out your message, the media is just going to say what they want. If they're ideologically opposed to you, uh, they're going to call you rioters or vandal, vandalists. Vandal, is that a word? Vandalist? Uh, are you going to call you rioters or accuse you, accuse you of vandalism rather than portray you as the revolutionary subject of history? So again, this is a very important thing in the mass protest decade. Protests only really scale up. Because by definition, you know, human beings can only see what's in front of their faces, like literally. Um, By definition, people only find out what a a protest is through the media. Now, that might be traditional media, might be newspapers and and television, or might be social media. But these things only scaled up really quickly when they were portrayed as sort of the people on the right side of history doing something noble uh, and glorious and fun. um, Or at least noble and glorious and exciting. And without any without any media that is on your side, this is impossible to achieve.
0: Yeah, well, I think this, this is yeah this is really interesting as well because I guess over the period you looked at, you had the proliferation particularly of social media, and again and again you see that things being shared on social media have uh, well, I don't know if we say disproportionate, but have a huge impact. I'm just wondering whether that would be true today. They were new at the time in many of these countries. Also, we know now about what's been going on on Twitter and shadow banning and and the way the social media has been manipulated manipulated in many ways when the covid crisis in other areas too and but uh clearly it's not what it was and it also doesn't have the novelty value that it had
1: yeah so i think that's a really good point i think we can point to sort of two historical inflections that happen with the way that we understand social media at the beginning of the 2010s it was kind of younger urban Often progressives that were getting online first and getting on social media first. And back then, everybody in sort of liberal Anglophone media, and basically this was the official story. Oh, well, there was only a very, very small amount of people that were dissenting from this understanding that social media was just going to be good. Uh, if people got together and it was because of the internet, it was good. Now, by the end of the decade, if you say, oh, a bunch of guys are marching on the, the 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 capital of a given country and it's because of social media, the first instinct might be the exact opposite. It might be like, whoa, 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 what's going on? This is bad stuff. You know, this is QAnon or this is sort of uh, the invasion of the capital in the US. Um So at some point in the middle of the decade, the idea flipped, especially for liberals, that the internet was social media was good to social media being bad. But now we're in a situation which I think is very... Tragic, and we need, and this is another. You know, this is the kind of thing that I think we could organize to try to build ourselves out of. Is we've come to a situation where we all know social media is bad, but we all accept that it controls the way that we understand the world. We all know that social media can be manipulated that it that it um, ignites passions or rewards lying in ways which are deeply destructive to to democracy, if not society in in, in general. Well, we just kind of are just, OK, well, that's just what we're going to do now. So we've the, the the narratives flipped, but we haven't come up with a response to try to change it, Um, which I think I think is a problem. And I think that needs to be resolved. I mean, frankly, I think it needs to be resolved if we're going to save democracy, Um, but it certainly need, needs to be resolved uh, if we're going to have some kind of control over what, how we under, experience the world uh, outside of the dictates of a for-profit, for-profit firm owned by owned by an oligarch living in California
0: Yeah and I think that's that's a really important uh, issue as well and it's slightly mysterious how some of these uh protests exploded in a way but there is uh some tangible Evidence, something uh, on the ground, where some something that was impacting the lives of, of the local people somehow, um, which may not be the case or is less the case, uh, surprisingly, when it comes to something like climate change. And notwithstanding the the you know extreme turbulence of weather we've seen recently, there is still and even a growing denial, uh, indeed, about. about uh, the impact of climate change it's something that still takes time something's going to happen in the future it's something that can be you know argued and and you know and and isn't necessarily something that we're feeling on the ground right now which right. i'm just wondering how that you think might impact protest movements i mean certainly that that idea of uh the time to organize is now is that building organizations and networks and cooperatives and you know that are building over time uh, is an essential ingredient, but it's you know it's it's quite often presented in quite an abstract way, um, and and therefore less likely to really motivate people to go out on, on the streets uh, and try and, and and create change. Yeah,
1: I mean, um, another thing that was was similar, despite all the different. Um, differences across the 10 countries that I looked at is that I think in seven cases, I can look this up, but in a lot of the cases, the actual spark was a viral image of police brutality. Um, it was the crackdown that Yanukovych unleashed on the students in, in the square in Kiev, not actually the European Association, Association Agreement. Uh, it was the way that the, the police cracked down on, on the protesters here in Brazil, not uh, actually the bus fare. Um, And the problem with climate change uh, and, you know, everybody, I'm sure this is something you talk about all the time on your podcast. It's global and it requires global cooperation. It's just much it's much less immediate than a cop around the street beating up a young woman. And you can go right up to that cop that did it and trying to sort of, you know, go out.
0: No, that's that's a fundamental point. But at the same time, certainly you're seeing in the UK. And uh, in other countries as well, you know, a, a serious crackdown on civil liberties, on people's yeah. ability to protest and so forth. And fairly extreme uh, uh, behavior from the police and, and possibly could uh, be more uh, akin to that kind of spark you're talking about.
1: Yeah. And, and again, you, you sort of said building networks and cooperatives um, is important. and but But then you said that it was... That sometimes the abstract nature of climate change is less likely to get more people to go out on the streets. What I would say is that street action should not be seen as uh the only or even the best way to get anything done. Um I what I would love to see, and, and I don't know I don't know how well we can evaluate. I mean, I'm from the United States. Uh I've been living on and off in London for for quite a while. But what I would love, I mean, I think a lot of young kids in the US would love this, is that there was like an organization that they could just straight join, which was like a revolutionary climate organization that doesn't necessarily build things. You know, it doesn't have to be street actions that are the main thing that they get together and they talk about the problem, they strategize. What is it that this organization can do to put pressure on all the right places. And that may include civil disobedience. It may include street actions. It may include, you know, there are even more radical ideas about, you know, when or where laws need to be broken in given territories. Um, I think a lot of people would be up for that. And, you know, and it also addresses another, I think a problem that is a, is big in the U.S. for young people is just the way to which you've just been entirely atomized and individualized by contemporary suburban um life things are not quite as bad in the uk but you know it's it's getting there where people really don't have anything to do with other people except for maybe go down to the pub and watch football uh like i would love to see the ability of like of of the kind of a mass organization where people could join up and be working all the time and some and it may be the case that Tactics need to change because this is another thing that, you know, social media summoned mass street movements can't do is they can't change tactics when conditions change. All, they only have one button to push, which is get get more people on the street um, and a proper organization. You know, I mean, this is perhaps a, a pipe dream. This is perhaps sort of nostalgia for the era of sort of um, political parties and, and, and in old, the old organizations of the 20th century. Um, I think that my cousin, you know, who's, you know, 19 in California, if there was one to join, might join kind of like a climate action organization, um, which is something that you end up being involved in for years and years and years. And you because, you know, the, the, the struggle is going to be going along, going on for probably as long as she's alive.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important point, and, and re- very interesting. Uh, <laughs> the heart of your book is, is I guess, that message that really, you know, the street movements and the street action and so forth uh, played a role in in so many of these, but isn't isn't the Uh, only and isn't always the best approach there's often a focus and people i talk to on on the podcast talk about you know that we need to eat less meat and uh, drive less and use more public transport and these are certainly levers and so forth but less focusing on the the need to apply uh, political pressure the need to uh, think about these uh, you know projects over time in organizations as you say any other thoughts just on on uh insights from the, the the people you spoke to about what they learned or what they would share with others uh, facing the same kinds of issues um, when it comes to climate.
1: Yeah. Don't be afraid of the, the state. Um, again, this was a mistake that a lot of people said that their movements had made is that they thought that to be really revolutionary meant that you totally did not engage with the existing government and you would, you refuse to form your own government on your own. Um, because, you know, governments are evil or the state is somehow, uh, 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 the enemy always. And this, again, this comes from sort of the anarcho and libertarian traditions that really had quite a lot of overlap with, with, um, social media ideology and, and a lot of the, the dominant approaches, uh, in political theory in the, in the, in the early 21st century. Whereas in reality, climate change requires the action, uh, The response to climate change requires the coordinated action of the world's governments. Now, it might be the case that the world's governments need to be radically different. You might need to actually think about revolutionary change, um, however that means to the global system. Um, And you might need to think about radical actions. But again, uh, radical actions must be evaluated not based on how radical they are, but what you think the consequence is going to be given the 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 given coalition of forces in 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 the world and in your in your local country um and the government influencing the government um is is not something that should be rejected for ideological reasons the governments are going to be the ones that can change i mean again i'm here in brazil um if 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 you wanted to go on a tour of the amazon with me um i don't know, i don't, I don't know, Want to t- take things off track or <laughs> bring the, the, uh, the mood down, but uh, to the part of the Amazon where a good, a good friend of mine was killed uh, last year um, while reporting on the destruction of the Amazon, I could show you around and, and make it clear to you pretty quickly why it is rational for local actors to destroy the Amazon. Now, you cannot change the particular web of regulations and market forces that make it rational to cut down the Amazon without government action. There's no way to save the Amazon without strengthening the Brazilian state. So that's another, I think that's another lesson that comes out of this is that there's not a identity between being very radical and being very anti-government. Um, maybe you want to form a new government, maybe you need to change the government in a lot. You need to ma- maybe you need to form an entirely new one of your own. Maybe you need to overthrow a government and create a new one depending on what, what situation you're talking about. But climate change requires the coordination of the, the world's states. I don't think we can wait for a sort of the, the possibility of global, uh, global anarchism to, sort of, to, to deal with climate change. Don't, don't be anti state.
0: Just one last question. I think it was a quote in a book in connection with with lenin um that this idea that um in these moments of flux and change that people grasp at what is already in the air, yeah, and that idea that um that generating ideas the connection between ideas visions visions of the future because we're drowned out uh with with you know uh fairly frenetic and scary. Voices about what's happening, um, uh, but having a vision and and cultivating different kinds of possible futures and visions. And I'm just wondering whether you finally got any thoughts on that on that, Vincent.
1: Yeah, that there, that is a Lenin quote. So there's it's funny because there's this U S. There's a sociologist who's very much like a mainstream sociologist, Charles Tilly, and he comes to kind of the same conclusion as to what Lenin says in that one quote, which is that when injustice hits or when a given people, um believe that some that injustice is being done to them. They're going to take the actions that they already know about that they've seen done before, rather than necessarily the actions that are the right ones. They're going to reach for what's already around them. They're going to do what they've seen someone else do. Um, and Lenin says something related, but, but uh, uh, um, also slightly distinct, which is that if an organization he's talking now, he's trying to talk, you know, he's strategizing for the Russian social, social democratic party. He's saying that in an uprising which is purely spontaneous, which, which has no intentional organizational and ideological content, will end up just adopting the ideology and the, the message that everybody in, that is already dominant in society. And this is precisely what happened in Brazil. A lot of Ukrainians told me that's what happened there, is that if you just get everyone on the street and everyone's allowed to bring their own reasons for being on the street, uh, they're going to just reproduce the existing set of opinions in society. So that's why organizations which have a long term and coherent understanding of what they're doing and how they see the world uh, are more effective than ones that just say, everybody show up and bring your own sign. Because if everyone brings up, shows up and brings their own sign, um, they're going to reproduce the society that it already exists. And then if, you're, if that's what you're doing, what's the point of having any kind of a move in the first place?
0: very interesting well thank you so much vincent for your time today and the uh, research fantastic research that you've done and i wish you all the best with your ongoing work
1: hi right. thank you so much for having me thank you so much for for your interest
0: if you enjoyed today's discussion we recommend you check out and support the work of client earth client earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach using the law to create powerful change that protects life on earth To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth uses the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. You can find out more at ClientEarth.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.